Welcome to the September 2020 edition of the Big Gay Fiction Book Club. I'm Jeff, and with me as always is my husband, Will. Hello, everyone. This episode of the Book Club is brought to you in part by our community on Patreon, where members get special early access to the Book Club and monthly bonus episodes. If you'd like to know more about what joining our community is all about, just head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. So I think this month I am the most excited about a book that I have been so far in the seven months that we have been doing Book Club. We are going back into history, if you will, to one of the very first books that I ever read in the gay romance genre. We are looking at Z.A. Maxfield's St. Nachos. And it's a particularly good time to revisit this wonderful book as well, because for the first time in what feels like forever, Zam is going back to St. Nachos and is beginning to release new stories in this universe, which I am so very excited to be diving into. The first one actually comes out right as September begins. But before you dive into the new stories <laughs> of Dinzians from the lovely coastal town of St. Nachos, let's take it back to 2008. That is when this first book was originally released. That was a long time ago, and a lot has happened in the gay romance genre since then. And luckily for us, as avid readers of Z.A. Maxfield, she has been able to republish these stories with brand new covers. They look wonderful. And like Jeff said, I am pleased as punch to have the opportunity to revisit this town at these characters. People that we first read about nearly 10 years ago. It's crazy. It doesn't feel like that long at all since I first held this book. This has actually been a book that I've reread one other time since I first read it because it's just one of those books that occasionally when you need a cozy little read, you can pick it up and go, oh, I like this place so much and feel better for it. And I think, I hope everybody understands why we feel that way as we kind of work our way through this book in this episode. Yeah. So whether you're like us and taking a walk down memory lane or whether this is the very first time that you've heard of this particular series, we hope that you enjoyed this book club episode. So let's get right to it. St. Nachos kicks off with bad boy biker and violinist Cooper, and he stops by a quiet local bar in the coastal tourist town of, yes, St. Ignacio. Jim, the owner of the bar, offers him a room upstairs if he'll help out around the place. And Cooper feels like, you know, St. Nachos feels nice enough to crash for at least a couple of days, so he decides to stay. How often do you get to put the term bad boy biker and violinist together into one <laughs> sentence? That does not happen very often, but it, it does very nicely sum up Cooper as he arrives in this town. And it's interesting as somebody who has been on the road for a few years now, how he almost immediately feels a certain peace in St. Nachos. And it's a theme that's going to come back over and over again in the book. Let's talk about the distinct first person narrative of Cooper. Unlike most current gay romance, this story is told from a single point of view. It's Cooper, and as I mentioned, it's in first person, and he has a very specific way of viewing the world and describing it to us, the reader. I'm often a fan of first person narrative, and in particular, often the individual first person narrator. And it really works in this book for many reasons. One of them is so much the voice that Zam gave Cooper here because his voice will actually morph over the course of the book as he finds himself and settles into this place. And it's really wonderful. It's just, it's one more piece that is allowed to come through in a way 
in this first person narrative that wouldn't have happened as strongly, I think, if it was a dual person or if it was third person. So as Cooper starts to make himself at home, we get to know some of the other characters in this wonderful place. As we mentioned, there is Jim, the owner of the bar. There's also Oscar and Tomas. They work in the kitchen. And there's also Sean. He's the handsome young deaf student who works part-time at the bar while going to school. And Cooper has definitely noticed Sean. Who wouldn't? <laughs> so true. He's handsome and enigmatic and perfect. And Cooper falls into a routine working at the bar and playing for the customers. One night he plays for Sean and he has him place his hand on the underside of the violin so that he can feel the vibrations of the music. And they share a very special moment. There's like the tinge of awareness and attraction. But Cooper seems unable to enjoy even that because he somehow sees himself as unworthy. And we're going to pick apart that particular story thread as we move a little bit deeper into the narrative. The thing that I like about the people that Cooper has met so far with Jim and Oscar and Tomas, and most specifically Sean, these people don't allow him to wallow. They do their best to accept him in the moment, for example. There's no looking askance when he first walks into the bar at, who is this? And this looks like trouble or whatever. It's come in, sit down, have a cup of coffee, have something to eat. Do you, you know, when he asks where he can stay, it's, well, there's a room over the bar that you won't have to pay for if you just work here. It's warm and it's welcoming. Throws him off his game a little bit because he's used to, you know, coming in and then immediately starting to look for when it's time to leave. But here he gets an acceptance that he has not had in years and perhaps ever in his life. And it's just, I'm going to say this over and over again, and I apologize for repeating myself, but it's just this comforting thing that happens in St. Nachos. Uh, And he falls right into it pretty immediately, but he keeps looking over his shoulder at the same time even while he's essentially just wrapped up in some love (laughs) from these people that he doesn't know. Yeah. Things move quickly for our two heroes, and Sean wants to know why Cooper has been avoiding him, and uh, in a really adorable moment, he thunks him on the head. (laughs) Which will not be the first time that happens either. (laughs) uh, Telling him that he's his friend. Later one afternoon, Sean tells Cooper, you know that I like you, right? And this just kind of illustrates how Sean is like 100% unpretentious. He's a completely open book, very straightforward. And frankly goes for what he wants, which I like. He likes Cooper. He wants Cooper. He wants to be at least friends, if not more, with Cooper. And he's going to make sure Cooper knows that. There's not going to be any games. That night, Cooper plays for Sean again. And Sean and his friends sing a song in ASL. Cooper really enjoys the performance and is really into Sean. And that night when he comes up to Cooper's room, he drops to his knees for him and they have a very fast and dirty and satisfying hookup. It's this scene that illustrates how the author is kind of subverting certain tropes and genre expectations from the reader. Cooper has very definite sub-tendencies and Sean is the one who is in control, which is a little bit different. You'd think the bad boy biker would be the one with all the big dick energy. And Sean, the angelic deaf guy, definitely proves that he knows how to take control of a situation and get down and dirty real fast. But he even shows that before they have sex because, I mean, he's the one, you know, giving the thump on the forehead to Cooper, too. 
He's shown that he is not going to play games, and he just keeps showing that in the bedroom as well. And you're right. It's very genre subversive there, and it just it's one more thing that makes this book so good. Cooper suggests to Jim that it might be time for him to move on. But that night, after playing for the crowd, he sees Sean walk in with his friends, and those thoughts of leaving quickly vanish. Sean and Cooper dance together, and when they head upstairs, Kevin, Sean's friend, tries to stop him. They have a brief fight in sign language before Sean takes Cooper upstairs and they spend a sexy, sweaty, very satisfying night together. This scene just crackled with its intimacy. And then for it to have been capped off by Cooper saying it was the single most intimate thing he'd done in years, just put the perfect button on that whole moment. And it's just one more turning point for Cooper not being able to leave this place or frankly, this man. Yeah. So after the business of working the Sunday brunch crowd, Jim and his husband invite Cooper and Sean over for popcorn and a movie, essentially a date night. And it's all very cozy, maybe a little bit too cozy. Back at Cooper's place, they have sex, finally breaking Cooper's no kissing rule. The next morning, Kevin barges in to have it out with Sean, who takes care of the situation, later explaining that Kevin wants him, but he wants Cooper. And it's here in a moment of intimacy that Cooper finally explains that he feels like he's damaged goods and he's never really been intimate with anyone while sober. Sean and St. Nachos have made him slow down and kind of take stock and make him realize that he wants something a little more meaningful. One of the masterful things that Zam does in this story is while we know from the beginning that Cooper is the bad boy biker, we don't really know why. There are little hints of it here and there. Like when he first arrives at the bar, he doesn't get a drink. He asks for coffee because he doesn't drink. But we don't go into all the details. And there's a very nice, slow rollout of the information of why Cooper doesn't drink, why he's never had sex sober. All these pieces of him get slowly revealed instead of one big info dump on Sean. And therefore, not a big info dump for the reader either. Which just, to me, just helps illustrate how complex Cooper is because he keeps some of this stuff to himself until it's the right moment to put it out to the world. And Sean's all about helping Cooper, too, because he actually gives Cooper a cell phone that he can type on so that they can text. Cooper's picking up little bits of ASL along the way, but for some of the more elaborative conversation... They're typing back and forth, or Cooper's typing, and then often Sean is is speaking because uh, Sean did not become deaf until after he'd already learned how to speak. So our heroes are busy being very coupley when one night Sean picks up Cooper in his car, but Cooper doesn't do cars. He tries, but he has a panic attack and becomes violently ill. They take a walk, and underneath the pier, Cooper explains he was in a car accident when he was younger, and he was with the guy who was his boyfriend at the time. And Cooper feels responsible. He went into rehab soon after and hasn't been in a car since then. And it's here what Zam is doing as she's sort of filling us in on Cooper's backstory. She's sort of playing with the genre conventions of characters with disabilities and how in the past the narrative was usually about them somehow being saved or made whole by love. Here it's Cooper and his traumatic past that are the problem. And it's Sean, the dreamboat deaf guy, who's going to do everything he can to make things better. And I think she also plays a little bit with the convention as well, because not all of the responsibility to make Cooper better 
is on Sean because it's also on the town. The town itself and all of its side characters are a major influence on what helps Cooper start to deal with and move past all this. And it's really nice that it's not just all saddled on one person either to fix the other one. Yeah. Sean decides to teach Cooper some sign language. It's then a little bit dull until Sean teaches him to sign kiss me <laughs> and the far more practical lie down and shut the fuck up. <laughs> These are important words to have. Very, very important. <laughs> it just goes to show that Cooper and Sean are both hot and completely adorable. In his downtime, Cooper uses Jim's office computer to learn some more ASL online, and the two of them settle into a comfortable routine, and Cooper realizes that he's got himself a real live boyfriend, and that he loves Sean with a big capital L. It's one of those moments, too, that I think is Cooper moving more into being a grown-up, if you will. The guy he got in trouble with all those years ago was a you know a friend-slash-boyfriend from high school, and they always used to go out, get drunk together, screw around, and do all that kind of stuff. And I think this is really Cooper's first moment to have a more adult relationship and a, even adult friendships with Jim and Oscar and Tomas and all those people. And it's, it's a really lovely growth moment to see Cooper being able to start to shed some of his feelings about his past. One day when they're off from work, they take a ride on Cooper's bike down the coast, eat at some touristy local spots, and then return home and make very sweet, slow love. It's their first date, really. It's yeah. so sweet. It's really wonderful. Later in the kitchen with Oscar and Tomas doing the day's food prep, they note his very sunny disposition and things couldn't be more perfect. Until Cooper gets a phone call. It's Jordan, the ex who was a part of that accident that we talked about earlier. Jordan is now out of jail and asks Cooper to come back home to help him start over. Because there's always a phone call. There had to be something, right, to, to break the spell. And this is certainly it. Jordan has called Cooper because he is the only one who understands what they went through. And when he tells Sean that he has to go, he's a little bit confused at first, a little bit angry, but mostly disappointed. And they spend one last night together. The next morning, they share one last kiss, and then Cooper leaves. Ugh, this is so heartbreaking. It really is. And I have to tell you, and this is probably me being a horrible person, but the fact that Jordan called and was all like, I need you to come back and help me be sober because you're the only one who understands. It's like, mm, that is not his responsibility. <laughs> it's a really mean thing to do. And I'll elaborate more on this meanness shortly because I have, I have more things to say about that. <laughs> so here we are at the halfway point in the story. And unlike other romances, we essentially start completely over with a brand new narrative. Cooper has started his life over with Jordy in River Falls, Wisconsin, the place where the two of them grew up together. Everything that the two of them are doing together is part of the pretense of starting over, but everything that they do and everything that they are is stifled under the weight of what once was, not what they are now. Yeah, they, they have two very different expectations. Even as Cooper shows up, I think he he's more here out of responsibility because he has always felt like, even though he gave up the keys, that he's still responsible in some way for the accident and the death that it caused. And Jordy's really just playing into that. And Cooper knows his life is really in St. Nacho's and it's really with Sean, but he's got this responsibility to his friends. So he's going to go back home 
and try to do this. And one of the first things that they try to ascertain is that they will not and cannot go back to being a couple. And it frustrates Jordy quite a bit. So Cooper is essentially trapped in kind of a benign purgatory. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well said. That's exactly what it is. And when he tries to get a job, the guy, who is an acquaintance from high school, makes sure that Cooper knows that the people in the town have a very long memory and things aren't going to be easy for him starting over. Jordy oddly just assumes that he and Cooper are automatically a couple again. We as readers know exactly what is going on. This is all super messed up, but Cooper is essentially doing everything out of obligation. Yeah, he's trying to do what he perceives as right. He's trying to be a good person and do the right thing. Even if it's totally wrong for him. (laughs) Yeah, when no one else is willing to do the same for him. Jordy's sobriety and his very existence hinges on making this work with Cooper and the uncomfortably strange support that Jordy gets from Pastor Stan. Also not one of my favorite people. He should have never let Jordy get all codependent on Cooper. I didn't like him from the moment that he allowed that to happen. Yeah. Stan is unsurprisingly passive-aggressive and more than a little bit creepy in his attempt to have Cooper repent, find the Lord, if you will. But Jordan's creepy church friends aside, it's not all bad in River Falls. There's Mary Lynn, the nice librarian who likes to use sign language during children's story time. There's also Cooper's sister Jules, who owns the local coffee shop, and she genuinely wants what's best for her brother. I love Mary Lynn. She's wonderful. She comes through time and again during the time in River Falls. The sister, on the whole, I like her, but she really blindsided Cooper by just giving Jordy his number without maybe checking in if that was really okay first. She's the one who set this into motion. And while I do ultimately like her as a character, it's like, I wish you'd reconsider just that one moment of your life right there. Walking to the library one day, Cooper finds Sean and... Everything is good once again. Sean, once again, proving that he is the alpha in this relationship, has come to get his man. And in a conversation with Mary Lynn, Sean says that he is in town to collect something that belongs to him. Exactly. Now, when Jordan hears of Sean's arrival, he doesn't take it very well. Cooper finally realizes that coming back to be with Jordy was possibly the worst thing for him. And when Jordan returns home after their fight, he is covered with welts and bruises. And it's here that Cooper realizes that Jordy has traded booze and drugs for some masochistic pain play. An encounter with two guys at the grocery store illustrate how the past will always haunt Jordan and Cooper as long as they remain in this particular town. Troubled and upset by this encounter, Jordan goes with Pastor Stan, and Cooper joins Sean at a concert in the park. And they have a pretty good time. They later have a clandestine blowjob. But it's surprisingly, it's not sleazy at all. You know, that's true. Somehow it's not. It is super, super sweet, even though they are in public when yeah. this happens. It's like, <laughs> There's something about the way that it goes down, and it's this reconnection moment that they're finally having that keeps the sleazy factor at a zero for me. Jordan seems resigned to the fact that Cooper has found someone new, but after another encounter with some townspeople on a street corner outside his sister's coffee shop, Cooper and Jordan have a real honest talk slash fight, and there is so much resentment and pain that Jordan is holding on to, he will most likely never be able to move on. A storm is brewing, both literally and figuratively, and Jordan goes missing, and everyone gathers at the coffee shop, even Stan, 
<laughs> and they're waiting for some news. Another side character that helps out is the police officer that Jules is forming a relationship with. Bill wants the best for Jordan, wants to look out for Cooper. He is a really nice guy that helped in some ways calm the town down. He he de-escalated the, the situation on the street with the people who were calling Jordan out. And he's there for his sister and for Cooper. And it's, it's, it's very beneficial. As the storm begins to rage outside, word finally comes that Jordy was kicked out of a BDSM club in the Twin Cities and has voluntarily committed himself to the hospital. Jules's new boyfriend, the cop, is going to drive everyone there. And Cooper, with Sean supporting him, has a panic attack but manages to make the trip in the vehicle anyway. Sean is so good holding him, whispering in his ear. But can you imagine what that trip must have been like? With Bill and Jules up front and Stan, Sean, and Cooper crammed up in the back. I mean, I get that it's a big, like, truck SUV thing, but all of those disparate people, tension-filled hour-long ride in the storm. I, I just can't imagine. When they get to the hospital, the only person Jordy is going to see is Cooper. And in a short conversation, Jordy accepts that he is still full of too much pain and regret and guilt from that night of the accident. And he's going to go into rehab. As much as I dislike Jordy, I'm glad that he sorted this out for himself. That it wasn't Stan and it wasn't somebody else that forced it on him. It's like he went away, had this unfortunate incident at the BDSM club, but then it clicked for him finally that he needed more help and that it wasn't on Cooper to get it for him. One of the things I liked in this too is that Jules put Stan in his place at one point. She's like, no, no. This is what's happening, and you need to shut up. <laughs> I very much appreciated that that happened. Well, at this particular juncture, as we are barreling towards the end of the story, Pastor Stan's true intentions become pretty clear. He doesn't really view Jordan as a person. He just sees him as genuinely damaged goods, and it's Stan's job to save him and make him whole. Not because he's altruistic in any way, but if he fixes this broken mess of a person, he can hold that guy up as an accomplishment. Exactly. It would be like, look, look what I did. I fixed this guy. I could fix you too. Mm -hmm. That's what he's after. Yeah. He's he's gross and awful and everyone leaves him behind as well, yeah, as well they should have. <laughs> so after the trip to the hospital, Cooper and Sean spend the night together in a weirdly endearing and comedic moment. They are so eager to screw one another that Cooper falls off the bed and banks his head. It's strange and sweet at the same time. It is. It's <laughs> it's comedic and sweet because they have to have a first aid moment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And then they've actually managed to get back to the lovemaking that needs to happen. Oh, definitely, definitely. So Sean flies back to California and Cooper packs up the few things that he has and he rides his bike cross country. When he finally arrives back in St. Nachos, Sean runs into his arms and immediately takes him upstairs to the little room above the bar. Cooper has found home. It's so sweet. I've loved it since the beginning, but I have to say that rereading it in the turbulent times we live in now, it was just putting on a nice cozy sweater and escaping to another place. I love this book. I love the other three books that are in the St. Nacho series. I can't recommend enough that you pick those up. In, in, in fact, one of them, Jordy actually gets his own story and finds the piece that St. Nachos can offer, which is nice. 
I have to say that I really like what Zam does in this book with Sean. You mentioned it a little bit in passing earlier that it, so many of the narratives that we would see with deaf people back, especially back in this 2008 time frame, would have somehow cast them as a victim or cast them in a way where the deafness defined them. That is the furthest thing from the way that Sean is. He's a very confident, outgoing young man who goes after what he wants. One of my favorite moments actually comes during the storm. It's this little moment that happens in the coffee shop while they're waiting for this news. And the storm is raging. And Sean, being a Southern California boy living on the coast, he pretty much never heard thunder, and especially not thunder like it can roll in a big Midwestern thunderstorm. And it freaks him out a little bit. And it's Mary Lynn who has to sign that this is not the apocalypse. (laughs) It is merely a storm and it will pass. But these little nice moments of, you know, insight into Sean's world are really nice. And I really like how Zam handled him here because in in the hands of a lesser writer, Sean would have come off as a much different character. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I really enjoyed revisiting this town and its delightful Denzians. <laughs> and I really liked the unique voice of the narrator and the stylistic choices that Zam has taken. While Cooper is the narrator throughout the entire book, There are certain stylistic choices that are in play here. Certain moments play out as entire scenes, but other times there are just little snippets or vignettes, tiny little moments that give us a picture of a whole. I'm not entirely sure about the time frame of this particular story. I assume it's actually taking place over the course of several months. And in a certain way, the narrative of the story takes on a certain cinematic feel in that we don't get all of the details from point A to point B. We get sort of an overview. Cooper just lightly touches on certain situations, giving us tiny glimpses into the evolution of his relationship with Sean. It's just a really interesting choice and not something we normally see when it comes in gay romance. I think this particular style works really well in the very last chapter where the author is wrapping everything up and things play out sort of like a montage in a movie. Our heroes saying goodbye in Wisconsin, the trip cross country only takes a few sentences, (laughs) his arrival back in St. Nachos, the sweet moment when Sean runs back into his arms. Yeah, I'm a fan of Zam and especially of what she's doing here. Speaking of the you know, kind of conventions of the story too. You you mentioned at the halfway point that essentially we start over, which is not the typical romance beats that we're used to. I mean, if anything, a black moment usually comes after 50% then ticking towards that last act. But here, so much of it was tilted a little bit with that hard turn at the 50% mark. There wasn't even much of a this is terrible. I shouldn't be in this relationship. It's like, you're now going to go over here and fully external forces are going to take over. It's really interesting. And it's also something you don't see too much today because it would have been more directly relationship focused that forced them back apart. Yeah. Something else I want to quickly also mention before you wrap things up here is the level of angst in St. Nachos. There is a lot of angst to be sure, But because of the way that Cooper specifically narrates the entire story, he's essentially filling us in on what happened, and we as a reader don't have to experience it firsthand, which in my mind made it more palatable and enjoyable. 
We don't experience the accident with Cooper and Jordy, even though it's clearly a defining moment that has shaped the lives of these two particular characters. I just think that it's all handled in a really interesting way, that we know and understand the pain and emotion of what has happened to them, but we as readers are able to, I guess, experience it in, I'll call it a more palatable way. It's not wallowing in pain. It's trying to deal with it constructively, especially from the viewpoint of Cooper. Yeah, so many stories like this would would revel in the pain because that's part of the redemption kind of story. And exactly. The, and the fixing of people. Yeah. And, and Zam knows how to tell that kind of story because one of her most popular books with Home the Hard Way is all about the angst and all about those feelings that, you know, can sit with you heavy as a reader. But here, it's almost like Cooper is maybe telling this story years down the road and is looking back on it and it helps to make that angst more palatable because it is in his past as well and resolved. And that's just me laying on how I kind of felt about it. But yeah, and that's part of what makes all of the Dachos books so so nice is the people who show up in this town and are broken, they're quote unquote fixed in this same kind of storytelling. Back in episode 60, we had Zam on the show and we talked a little bit about St. Nachos. And she mentioned in that interview that she's always (laughs) kind of considered this place like Brigadoon. It's like you find it when you need it. (laughs) And if you don't need it, you might just as easily drive by it. Or, you know, they talk about that St. Nachos has a big lunch crowd and people come from all over for brunch. So you may come for the brunch, but you're going to stay if you really need to stay kind of thing. So it's it's that unique kind of place that is just healing with its place and its people. And I want to go live there so bad. <laughs> yeah. If you'd like to experience just a little bit of magic, Jeff and I both highly recommend you check out St. Nachos by Z.A. Maxfield. So I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and our little walk down memory lane. And if this is your first time hearing about this book, we hope that you'll give it a try. So I think that'll do it for this month's book club pick. We'll be back again next month for another deep dive look at some of the very best that the gay romance genre has to offer. So until then, stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.